Mai Kitifenua Kodawai Kotaku. Welcome to the land of the long white coat. Kia ora koto. Hey everyone. Welcome back to part two of episode three The Road Ahead, Dr. Jobs and the Training Pathway. Thanks for your patience, waiting for me to get this part of the episode out. Had a bit of a delay and decided to rewrite the whole thing, so it took a bit longer than I expected, but it's finally here. In part one, we talked about the different levels of doctor that you're going to encounter in the hospital, house officers, registrars, consultants, that kind of thing. Um, and while we were going, we talked several times briefly about the college system for registrar training in a particular specialty. So in the second part, I just want to expand on that and introduce you to the idea of professional colleges and take a look at some of the more common colleges that you're likely to encounter. As I think I said in part one, every specialty, whether it's medical or surgical or general practice or psychiatry or whatever, has a professional college associated. And if you want to train in that specialty, then you need to apply to that college to do so. So this is nothing to do with being at university, like as a medical student, and it's also nothing to do with the Medical Council of New Zealand, which is who trains you as a house officer, at least not directly. So the job of the college is to set a minimum standard for what it means to be an expert or a consultant in that specialty. They're going to provide your exams and other forms of assessment like OSCEs uh, while you're training as a registrar in that specialty. And eventually, when you meet the standard, they're going to award you with fellowship of the college. And that is how you become eligible for consultant jobs. And even after you become a fellow, you're still going to have stuff to do with the college. So most colleges will require you to do a certain amount of continuing medical education or CME, you might have heard of that. And they're going to remain your sort of professional overseer, which I guess will be relevant if there were any concerns with your practice as a doctor. So every college is going to have slightly different admission requirements. Um, some are more competitive than others and some require you to have more experience than others. But in general, you need to be fully registered with the Medical Council of New Zealand in order to get into the college. And usually that's going to mean you've done at least those two postgrad years as a house officer, PGY1 and PGY2. Some colleges will require you to have got a bit more experience than that. One important thing to realize is that even though it's the college that is overseeing your training, they're not actually teaching you on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Because you're working in the hospital as a registrar this whole time. So the college is setting your exams and your curriculum, that sort of stuff, but your day-to-day -day learning is just from simply gaining experience in the hospital on, on the job, and you're going to get teaching and guidance from your senior colleagues, but ultimately the hospital is where you actually do all your learning. And because of this, the college has to be sure that the hospital is actually a suitable place to train in that specialty. And this is a process called accreditation. So the way that works is you've got a hospital somewhere in the country, and they say, we would like to train radiologists. And so the College of Radiologists come to visit the hospital. They assess the department and look at how the teaching's going on and what jobs people are doing as registrars. And if they're satisfied that that's a good enough place to learn, they say, yep, that's all good. And they give them the stamp of accreditation. And then the hospital is allowed to train people in that specialty. This is just relevant to know because in the news occasionally, hospitals will lose accreditation in something that they previously had. And this might be because the department's not running as well as it used to, or because there just aren't enough senior staff to teach the registrars. What else do you need to know about colleges? Oh yes, every college has an acronym. 
And when you're fully qualified by the college, you become a fellow and you stick an F, a letter F on the front of the acronym, and then you can put those letters after your name and the F stands for fellow. So if you're training as a GP, you're training with the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the RNZCGP. And then when you're fully qualified, you become FRNZCGP. Okay, that's enough general stuff. Let's move on and look at some important specialties and their associated colleges. This can get a bit complicated because there are so many medical specialties. There's like over a hundred, I think, if you add them all up. To help organize this in your mind, I like to think of the specialties in five kind of clusters, and those are as follows. Primary care, which is doctors who work outside of the hospital. Medical specialties. Surgical specialties. I'm not sure what to call this one, but I kind of think of it as acute or critical care. And in this cluster, I put ED, ICU, and anesthetics. And the fifth cluster is sort of other. <laughs> this is just stuff that doesn't fit anywhere else, I guess. And I include in here radiation stuff, like radiology and radiation oncology. And the three Ps, pathology, public health, and psychiatry. So you might notice that this lines up fairly well with the departmental structure that we talked about in episode two on how hospitals work. Do you remember we had the ED and the ICU, and then we had the medical ward, and maybe in a bigger hospital that was split up into its specialty wards? And then we had the surgical ward and the same applied to that. And so this is kind of the same, right? So you have a specialty for each potential department in that hypothetical hospital, and you can kind of organize them in your mind in the same way as we organized those departments in that episode. All right, let's get on with it. So cluster one, primary care. The most important specialty here is obviously general practice. And I'm not gonna go into detail about what a GP does. I'm sure you all know from your own encounters. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about GPs in another episode. But just want to say for now, the college that trains GPs is the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, RNZCGP. The training program for general practice is pretty short. It's a lot quicker than some other specialties. It only takes three years. And the way that works is the college provides something called the GP Education Program, or GPEP. So once you've done those two years as a house officer, you can apply for GPEP 1, or the first year of GPEP. And while you're a GPEP 1, a first year GP registrar, you're working in a GP practice, but you are quite supervised. And so you'll be either seeing patients along with your supervisor, or you'll be seeing patients from their list and then going to discuss them afterwards. And one day every week, one whole day is allocated to teaching. So you'll have kind of seminars and group discussions and that kind of thing. So it's actually not that different to being a trainee intern maybe if you think about it you sort of have a bit of teaching and then you go and practice and you report back to your supervisor and have a chat at the end of that first year you set the only exam and that's called the primex or primary examination and as long as you pass that then you're actually home and dry you've got two more years as a registrar gpep2 gpep3 but Essentially, during that time, you're practicing as a fully functioning GP with just occasional discussion with the supervisor whenever you feel that you need it. So that's pretty awesome, right? If you train as a GP, you, you can be fairly independent as a doctor within three years of graduating. Two more important specialties under the primary care heading I want to mention. The first one is rural hospital medicine, and the relevant college is the Division of Rural Hospital Medicine of New Zealand, DRHMNZ. 
bit of a mouthful. This is a sub-faculty of the GP college. And when you train in rural hospital medicine, you may or may not train as a GP at the same time. So it's kind of like a sub-specialty of GP if you'd like. Rural hospital medicine is quite an interesting specialty, I think. I just want to read to you the description from the Medical Council website. Rural hospital medicine is determined by its social context, the rural environment, the demands of which include professional and geographic isolation, limited resources, and special cultural and sociological factors. It's invariably practiced at a distance from comprehensive specialist care. A broad generalist set of skills, knowledge, and attitudes are needed to deliver optimum patient outcomes in rural hospitals. Unlike rural GP, rural hospital medicine is oriented to secondary care and is responsive rather than anticipatory. So essentially, rural hospital medicine is the specialty for the ultimate generalist. If you really can't decide what to do with your career, do rural hospital medicine, because you get to do a bit of everything. I guess it's a mix of GP and ED and anaesthetics and maybe even minor surgery. And the last specialty I want to talk about in primary care is urgent care. And the relevant college here is the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. Urgent care docs work in urgent care centres, also known sometimes as after-hours clinics. And the idea here is that they are sort of halfway between a GP and an ED specialist. So they're practicing in the community, but they're going to be seeing people who are slightly more acute than people presenting to GPs, right? So they need to be able to recognize sick patients and send them to ED. And they also need a bit more sort of resuscitation skills than your average GP. So they probably need to know a bit about managing heart attacks and altered level of consciousness, sepsis, that kind of thing. And some doctors will work part-time GP and part-time urgent care. So they'll often be dual qualified. Next cluster is medical specialties. So this is doctors who work inside the hospital but don't do surgery. And these doctors are often called physicians uh, to differentiate them from surgeons. That's quite a useful term. And the relevant college, therefore, is the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, RACP. What do you need to know about physicians? They're really smart. <laughs> they have to do a lot of thinking and they have to know a really wide range of presentations. They've got to be good at differential diagnosis. They've got to always be on the lookout for rare or atypical presentations too. And they've got to be able to manage multiple disease processes because some patients are going to come in with heart failure and renal failure and cancer and COPD all at the same time. And they're going to have to balance all these things and try to take the best care of the patient that they can. Medical doctors live for the ward round. <laughs> and this is because on the ward round is where all the decisions get made and all the action gets taken. And so medical ward rounds can take a long time. Sometimes they take all day. So as a student, you might want to take a snack. So how do you train as a physician? You do three years of basic training in general medicine, and you can do that in either adult or pediatric medicine. And at the end of that, you set the basic training divisional exam, which is a written and an OSCE exam. And there's one of those for adult and one of those for peds. And then that's it. You're done with exams and you go on and apply for advanced training in one of, I think, 34 medical specialties. And some of those you have to have done the adult basic training and some of them you have to have done peds and the rest of them you can do either. Some of those specialties do have further exams, but the basic ones like cardiology and respiratory medicine don't. There's no exit exam from advanced training. So I'll just quickly list some of these medical specialties that you're likely to encounter. Cardiology, gastroenterology, respiratory medicine, rheumatology, neurology, hematology, that's a joint training program with pathology. Uh, endocrinology, infectious disease, and pediatrics. And note that's different from pediatric surgery, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on. And there's heaps more than that. 
heaps of interesting ones like medical oncology and adolescent or young adult medicine. And just remember that the bigger the hospital, the more of these specialties are going to have their own ward or department. Uh, whereas in a smaller hospital, they're all going to just be on the one medical ward. The next cluster is surgical. There's one thing to remember about surgeons. Surgeons do surgery. That is their main thing. That is what gets them out of bed in the morning. Obviously, they also need to know how to take care of patients before and after the operating theatre, like on the ward or in the outpatient clinic, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to get into theatre and do their thing. One other thing you need to know about surgeons is that unlike physicians, they absolutely hate morning ward rounds because they just want to get to theatre and get on with it. All surgeons are engaged in a constant battle to see who can get their ward round done the fastest, and it's generally accepted that spending longer than two minutes per patient is probably too long. I'm kidding, but you get the idea. Now in terms of colleges, surgery is an interesting one. Most surgical specialties train under the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, the RACS, but two surgical specialties, that's obstetrics and gynaecology, as well as ophthalmology, have their own separate colleges, and that's for historical reasons. But let's look at RACS first. These guys used to be the barber surgeons back in the 17th and 18th centuries. And as a historical consequence of that, doctors who qualify FRACS actually stop being called doctor and they go back to being called Mr. or Miss or Mrs. or Ms. And this is from back in the day, surgery was considered to be below a doctor, a physician, who was supposed to keep their hands clean and treat the patient from a distance. And so all the dirty surgery jobs got done by the barbers. So the same people that were cutting your hair and trimming your beard were also taking your appendix out. Scary, eh? Kind of Sweeney Todd style. And of course they weren't doctors, and so they were just called Mr. So there's nine specialties under RACS, and I'm just going to read them all out quickly. Cardiothoracic, orthopedic, ENT, pediatric surgery, plastic surgery, urology, vascular, neurosurgery, and finally general surgery. And general surgery is basically everything that's left over when you take out all those previous eight. So that's going to be abdominal surgery or colorectal surgery. It's going to be upper GI surgery, which is like liver, gallbladder, pancreas, breast surgery, and it's also going to be endocrine surgery. So things like thyroid problems. And often if you train in general surgery, you can subspecialize into one of those areas. The training program that's run by RACS is called the Surgical Education and Training Program, or SET. And people will say things like SET 1 or SET 2, depending on what year they're in. In contrast to training with the RACP as a physician, there's no undifferentiated basic surgical years. Instead, you get selected straight into the specialty which you've applied for. So then for each of those specialties that we just listed, those nine, there's going to be three separate exams. The first one is called the General Surgical Sciences Exam or otherwise known as part ones. And that's got to be done by the end of set two. And that's the same exam regardless of whatever specialty you actually chose. And then once you've passed that, you go on and do the specialty exam in set three or four. And that one's going to be specific to your specialty. And finally, there's one last exam called the fellowship exam. Again, that's going to be specific to your specialty. And that's the final hurdle to become a fellow of the college, FRACS, and then be eligible for consultant jobs. Training in obstetrics and gynaecology, as we said, is a separate college. That's the RANSCOG, or Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Bit of a mouthful. Lucky it's got a catchy acronym. 
ONG is classically defined as the care of women and their reproductive organs during pregnancy, throughout the reproductive years, and beyond. But nowadays that's actually changing a little bit for various reasons, um, like transgender patients, and also fertility specialists who are working with men as well as women. So training in ONG, there's four years of what they call core training, and then you do one exam, and then you do two years of advanced training, and then you're done. And you can go on to train in subspecialties like gynaeoncology or fertility. And the last surgical specialty to talk about is ophthalmology, and this is eye doctors. Not something you necessarily think of as a surgical specialty, is it? But they do do surgery, and it's quite difficult surgery, because it's all very small. The college here is the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists, RANSCO. I'm not going to go into any more detail on that, but I do just want to do a quick shout out to Edward Palmer, who's a fifth year in Wellington. I heard a rumour that he's going to ace fifth year exams and then train as an ophthalmologist. So good luck, Ed. Our next cluster of specialties and colleges is acute and critical care, which is a cluster I just made up, but these three do seem to go together pretty well. They are ED, ICU, and anaesthetics. So ED first. Emergency medicine is taking care of sick and undifferentiated patients. You learn to be a specialist in resuscitation, which is stabilizing a patient who's really unwell. In reality, it's a bit more complex than that because the majority of people that turn up to ED don't actually need any resuscitation. And in the last few years, we've seen more and more patients turning up at the ED with problems that in fact could be dealt with by GPs or other primary care providers, which is actually part of the reason why urgent care has come into being, to try and take some of the load off ED. But we'll save that discussion for another episode. The college that trains ED doctors in Australasia is the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine, ASIM. And when you become a fellow, you're a FASIM, which I think is quite catchy. And... As with most of the other training programs, it's split into provisional training, which is three years, and then advanced training, which is another three years. And you have one exam at the end of each of those. You have the primary exam, and then at the very end, you have the fellowship exam when you become a FASIM. <music> Anesthetics is a specialty that kind of gets forgotten sometimes, I think. An anesthetist or anesthesiologist in the US is a specialist in control of the airway, getting IV access, and the delivery and maintenance of analgesia and anesthesia. To be an anaesthetist, you need to have a really wide knowledge of drugs and interactions and doses. So the main role of an anaesthetist is providing general anesthesia in theatre when patients are undergoing surgery, but they also might do regional or spinal anesthesia, like for caesarean sections. But other than that, they also have a role as a consultant in the hospital. So if there's a difficult IV access on the ward and nobody can seem to get the needle in, the last resort is to call the anaesthetist, who will show up and save the day. Or they might be consulted for pain relief options, for example, on the obstetrics ward. And often in hospitals, there's a pain management team, and that will usually feature at least one anaesthetist and probably also a palliative care doctor as well. So as a student, watch out for anaesthetists. You will see them in theater while the surgery is going on. They will be sitting there doing the Sudoku puzzle and waiting for something to happen. And the final specialty I want to talk about here is ICU, or intensive care medicine. ICU, as we discussed in episode two, is where the truly sickest patients go. ICU doctors are not really resuscitation specialists, but more specialists in keeping people alive who have multi-organ failure and doing so at all costs. So it's the ED docs that resuscitate the patient and then pass them on to ICU. 
So something interesting about ICU is that for some reason, most ICU registrars seem to already be fellows in emergency medicine or anesthesia. I'm not sure exactly why this is, but I suppose it is a really complex specialty. It does require a lot of technical knowledge and obviously skills from ED and anesthesia are going to carry over quite well. To be an intensive care doctor, which is also called an intensivist, you've got to be able to work with numbers, be able to work with a lot of different equipment, have a great understanding of physiology, and you've also got to be able to accept that most of your patients won't be able to speak to you. And unfortunately, some of these patients are so sick that things aren't going to work out no matter what you do. And that brings us to our final cluster of specialties and colleges for today, one which I've inventively titled Other, and this includes radiation stuff and the three Ps. So let's start with the radiation stuff, eh? The first college I want to talk about is the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Radiology. That's R-A-N-Z-C-R. -R. And this college is interesting because it trains two quite different specialties, radiology and radiation oncology. So as you probably know, radiology is the specialty of interpreting medical images. So things like x-ray, CT, MRI, ultrasound. And the job of the radiologist is to provide an expert interpretation of an image that other doctors can rely on to make clinical management decisions. So the stereotypical picture of a radiologist is a doctor sat in a dark room with huge computer screens looking at images and producing reports all day. But this is starting to change because of something called interventional radiology. And this is the idea of radiologists coming out of the dark room and going into places like the cath lab and actually actively performing procedures on patients under imaging guidance. So if you think back to episode two when we talked about the cath lab and people getting something called PCI when they're having a heart attack, um, some radiologists around the world are actually doing those procedures. So they're kind of overlapping with other interventional medical specialties like cardiology, for example. But on the whole, radiology is a non-patient contact job. The other specialty was radiation oncology. So this is doctors who work very closely with medical oncologists, but instead of focusing on chemotherapy, they are focused on radiotherapy as a treatment for cancer, and they in fact are administering the radiotherapy. So they have to have a lot of technical knowledge of all the amazing machines that do that. They have to plan out how they're going to zap a tumor and come up with a way of doing so without damaging adjacent structures. And that brings us to the final three specialties I wanted to talk to you about today, the three Ps, pathology, public health, and psychiatry. So we'll start with psychiatry. The college here is the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. The model of psychiatry is kind of similar to medical specialists or physicians in terms of the training pathway and the way that they practice their specialty. But obviously psychiatrists have some very unique knowledge and skills working with patients with mental illness. And their main areas of expertise are pharmacology, so they know an awful lot about all the special psychiatric drugs that lots of other doctors have no idea about. But they also provide talking therapies like psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a common treatment for depression, which you might hear about. Or even slightly less orthodox things like hypnotherapy. Pathology is a non-patient contact job. Pathologists are experts in disease at either the anatomic or molecular or biochemical level. And so their job is usually working in a lab, interpreting biopsies or aspirates, and feeding back the diagnosis and prognosis to the clinician who requested the test. So a pathologist brings a lot to the table with their specialist knowledge. They can help out the clinician 
with a level of detail that's just not achievable outside of the lab. Pathologists train with the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia, the RCPA. And the RCPA offers a bunch of different disciplines within pathology, which I guess are like subspecialties. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some of those are joint training with medicine, so things like hematology and microbiology, and that's because those jobs require a mix of both clinical knowledge and pathology knowledge. Uh, but the rest of them are sort of pure pathology, and the important ones there are anatomic pathology, chemical pathology, uh, forensic pathology, and maybe genetic pathology. One important job that some anatomic or forensic pathologists might do is performing post-mortems. And our final specialty for today is the final P, public health. The college here is the New Zealand College of Public Health Medicine. And public health docs have a huge variety of roles that they can work in. Obviously, kind of by definition, they don't work with individual patients. They can take roles in the hospital, in government, working on health policy, or they can work in regional public health units, looking at things like the water supply and food distribution or even disaster management. It's a specialty that often gets written off by med students pretty early on, but I think it's really interesting and definitely something to consider. That's the end of our tour through the specialties for now. It kind of ended up just being a long list, didn't it? So I hope you guys found it interesting and there's something you can take away from it. If you want any more detail on any of that, um, the Medical Council of New Zealand website is a really good place to go. If you go to the website, which is mcnz.org.nz, and on the side, on the left, there's a bar. If you go down to scopes of practice, and then vocational registration, and then types of vocational scope. There's a big list of all the specialties you could possibly be interested in, some of which I haven't mentioned here today, and you can read a bit more about what's involved in training and what the job might be like. And if you want even more detail, then you can go to the website of the college itself. So we're almost done. There's just one more thing I said I would do in this podcast, and that is to compare our training system that we've been talking about with how things work overseas. And I think the two important ones to know about are the UK and the US. Like many things in New Zealand, our medical training system is basically modelled on the UK system. And so, as you might expect, they're still very similar. They kind of have the same ways of getting into med school. Um, after you graduate, you do those two postgraduate years, and then you become a registrar in a specialty of your interest. Just know that instead of calling them PGY1 and PGY2, they call them F1 and F2, and they call those the foundation years. But otherwise, it's completely the same. And because of that, you'll probably meet a lot of junior doctors from the UK in New Zealand hospitals, because many of them come over here after doing F1 or F2 and continue their training. And that's because, obviously, life is so much better here. The USA is quite different. First of all, to get into med school in the US, you have to do a degree beforehand. And you can't just do any old degree, you have to do something called pre-med. And these are kind of pre-packaged degrees in things that are relevant to medicine, like anatomy or physiology or some of the physical sciences. And that takes four years, like all undergraduate degrees in the US. And then you apply to a med school, and that takes another four years. And here's the big difference with the US. Once you finish med school, you basically go straight into training in the specialty of your choice you don't have those two postgraduate years of rotating through everything and having time to make a decision. It used to be the case that they did have an intern year in the US, just one year, but 
Recently, that's kind of been absorbed into the first year of specialist training. Another difference is that doctors training as a specialist in the US are not called registrars, instead they're called residents. And also residency in the US only takes four years, as opposed to most of the registrar programs we've just talked about, which take at least six or seven years. So it's kind of short and intense in the US. It's going to be over sooner, but the workload is much greater day to day. Okay, this episode's getting kind of long, so let's wrap up with a summary. Specialty training as a registrar in New Zealand is overseen by the relevant professional college. However, your day-to-day -day training is provided in the hospital environment by senior staff, and therefore the hospital needs to be accredited by the college to train registrars in that specialty. Specialties in New Zealand and most of the rest of the world can be considered in five key clusters. Primary care, hospital medicine, surgical, acute and critical care, and other stuff like radiology, psychiatry, and non-clinical specialties. Generally, each college provides two to three years of basic training, followed by an exam, and then three or more years of advanced training in a particular specialty, which may or may not include further exams. New Zealand's system is modelled on the UK system, which is very similar except PGY1 and 2 are called F1 and F2. And finally, the US system is very different, requiring a degree before med school, med school taking only four years, no equivalent to the house officer job, and as a result, a first-year registrar from New Zealand will be far more experienced than a first-year resident from the USA. Hopefully all of this makes sense. It seems like a lot, but we've only just talked about doctors, and there's heaps more roles in a hospital, obviously. So we'll do a future episode on nurses and other clinical and non-clinical staff. And most importantly, how to work with all these people as a medical student and in the future as a doctor. As always, if you've got any questions, feedback, or yarns you'd like to share, please get in touch via email or the Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash land of the long white coat or email land of the long white coat at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, kakite anō.